You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall, and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You can find all of your sales and rental equipment needs fulfilled at McAllister.com. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Jim Voiles. Jim Voiles is the man you want in the foxhole next to you, sitting, standing right next to you. He is the preeminent defense attorney in the state, if not beyond. His reputation is amazing. His track record is basically the Harlem Globetrotters against the Washington Generals, and he's very, very kind to come on the podcast. Thank you, Jim, very much. Uh, You embellished it a lot, but you're welcome. I'm glad to be here. Well, the show is called Leaders and Legends for a reason, and um, you qualify not only because I know uh, from others how you've mentored folks and how you give of your time and your talent, uh, besides when you're uh, actually in the courtroom and defending. And to say that you are a legend in the local uh, legal community would be understating it. And I have several attorney friends of mine who cannot wait to listen to this podcast once we post it. <laughs> well, they must be desperate for information. <laughs> in doing some research about you, there were several things that struck me and we're going to go through them all obviously in the course of the podcast but you were the first thing I have to say that struck out is the fact that you were born in January of 43 you're a good Capricorn like me but when did you meet your father and why wasn't he there when you were born uh, my dad was uh, fighting in the Pacific um, he had joined the army uh, what he really did is he left after he graduated from Shortridge High School. He went to Florida with some of his pals and joined the Florida National Guard um, just before Pearl Harbor, uh, which then created him immediately going into OCS. Uh, he was put into the military and uh, really continued his life in the military. So I never saw him till I was age three uh, when he came uh, back after the war ended. Um, then he went to, uh, law school, uh, here in Indianapolis, uh, for a short time, but didn't finish. And then was called back into the service and became a, uh, full bird colonel on retirement in charge of the, uh, draft, uh, for the state of Illinois. We, we moved from Indianapolis to Michigan city and he worked at fifth army headquarters in Chicago and took the South Shore train in, and then we moved, uh, when the 5th Army Headquarters moved to Springfield, Illinois, um, 
he moved down there and uh, my parents lived there the rest of their lives. He fought in the Pacific. So was he in the army with MacArthur and the drive through the lower Pacific had come up? He was in the, uh, he was on Guam, the Philippines. He was in artillery. So he was the guy with the big guns on the beach uh, supporting the, the, uh, the invasion. You mentioned Springfield and uh, given your ultimate vocation, did you get immersed while you were in Springfield, Illinois and all things Lincoln? Well, it's funny. I mean, when you live in Springfield, it is all about uh, the former president. Uh, I visited his home numerous times. I've been to his old law firm with he and Herndon. Uh, the state capitol was reconstructed after I moved uh, back to Indianapolis to uh, replicate the capital when Lincoln was uh, in the legislature. And so, um, but I had, I had the bug to be a lawyer long before that. My uncle, uh, George Ober, was a lawyer in Indianapolis. And uh, I kind of got indoctrinated uh, to be a lawyer through him and through my dad. Uh, they thought that that would be a, a direction I should go uh, in pursuit of a career. And so, that's kind of how it happened. And uh, although Lincoln has been a fascinating character, uh, I just finished a book on him uh, that tells about his trip from Springfield to Washington, D.C. when they attempted to assassinate him uh, before he was inaugurated, uh, which is a new book out. And so very interesting uh, historical background about that. In a few weeks, uh, we will record a podcast with a gentleman named Harold Holzer, who is probably the preeminent Lincoln scholar living today and was the historical advisor to the movie Lincoln. So I will make sure I send that your way, but he knows all there is to know. And actually he was friends with uh, another person who I know that you knew and was a subject of a past podcast. And that is Congressman Andy Jacobs. Absolutely. They served on the uh, Abraham Lincoln Bicentennial Commission together. Uh, Very interesting. Uh, And when they rededicated the museum in Springfield uh, within the last uh, 10 or 15 years, it was a a really big deal. And it's been a boom to the town. You bought, you bit or got bitten by the law bug early. Were there any other vocations, any other, like, I want to be this or I want to be that, and then finally you not settled on the law but decided on the law? Was there any other things you thought about pursuing? Yeah, I wanted to be a race driver. That's how that's, I really wanted to do it. That's exactly but, where I was headed. But I, <laughs> I, uh, my dad said that was uh, not going to happen, and so um, I was directed directly to my profession. I mean um, – and I got the bug for that through my uncle, uh, George Ober. Uh, he was one of the founders of the United States Auto Club, the sanctioning body for all motorsports in this country at one point. Um, and he was the attorney for USAC. Uh, he and Mr. Holman started it in 1955. He was a big race fan, and I just kind of adopted that uh, sport as my sport. You graduated from the IU School of Law here in 1968. Correct. Do you have any contemporaries with whom you still see and practice law, folks who graduated with you and 
How much has that law school changed since you walked out the door the final time? Well, it's it's two law schools ago. Uh, we're only we're in the old uh, Manhanger building on uh, Illinois Street, which is no longer there. It was t- torn down, uh, and then they moved. We were the last class in that building, and then they moved to uh, Military Park, and then from there uh, the new law school. Uh, but yeah, uh, my law partner was Denny Zahn, who was my classmate. Who Denny is now retired. Uh, Jerry Zori, uh, another classmate. Uh, Judge Gifford, that we tried the Tyson case in front of. Judge Gifford and I were classmates. And uh, yeah, there was a lot of contemporaries that are still uh, active. Not as active as me, unfortunately, but uh, still active. So uh, Jerry Zori's a... Good dude, as a matter of fact. I don't know him very well, but we always have uh, good interactions when I see him, which the last few times has been at the Golden Ace when he's with Mr. Ed Tracy. But what's it? They chose to be judges uh, and judge uh, Pat Gifford, and you never went that route. Did you ever consider that route? And, and what was it like, you know, having to be respectful and deferential to Jerry Zori when, when you've known him for so long? Well, it's interesting. Uh, I never had a case in front of Jerry. Jerry did the civil sides of the practice, and I didn't do any of those. I think Denny and I had one small matter in Jerry's court a long, long time ago. But uh, And with, with Judge Gifford, I was in Judge Gifford's court all the time. Uh, and it's very easy. I mean, the court has a very uh, important role in our society. And so it was easy to respect Judge Gifford. Uh, she demanded it in, for not just me, but for everybody. Uh, and even though we had been in law school together, I show, uh, and we all continue to show respect for the judge. Um, Jerry is the same people who were class with me who had civil cases with Jerry. Uh, certainly uh, respected his responsibility as a judicial officer. So it it really wasn't very hard at all uh, to play that role of classmate and uh, then letting them be judges of our cases. So, Is there a courtroom slash lawyer movie that you think gets it right? Oh, I, I don't know. I, uh, I, I've i seen a number of them. Uh, the uh, I, I don't think, I think they use a lot of um, leeway in presiding and presenting the case uh, for an audience uh, as a movie. And so I, I don't think it replicates it. Um, as I have lived it myself, uh, but I'm, they're, they're great for entertainment. I'll, I'll throw one or two out there. The verdict that always seems to get a pretty high marks with Paul Newman. Well, I, I, I enjoyed that, but the unethical part of it, uh, was always very difficult. Uh, if you really practice law and have to deal with real life situations, uh, that was a, that was a difficult and it, it was more like fiction to me than reality those of us who are have a a background or a love or both of history will watch history movies or tv shows and just 
you know, kind of like, wow, that's not even close to what happened. Uh, Braveheart, as great a movie as Braveheart is, from a historical standpoint, it's an absolute mess. Do you sit and ever watch a show like, say, for example, Law and Order, and and you can't enjoy the show because you're too busy being an actual attorney and going, oh, my God, why didn't they object? Like, what are you thinking? Or is it just something where you can go, ah, it's entertainment, or you don't watch them at all? I, I, I don't watch them very much. Uh, but it's just entertainment to me. Uh, I wouldn't be really concentrating or thinking about objecting or doing anything like that. I'd rather watch Gunsmoke myself. (laughs) It's understandable. Defense attorneys used to be kind of cultural heroes, especially in the, during the civil rights era. Uh, the most famous example obviously is Perry Mason, uh, has that changed a little bit? I mentioned law and order a few minutes ago where the, the, the focus is on the prosecutors trying to put away the bad guys is, has that changed for you and how uh, criminal defense attorneys are perceived or portrayed? No, I, I think, I think it's maybe uh, a little different in today's world. I, I think there are more respect for defense lawyers. I, I think most defense lawyers carry themselves uh, very well, both professionally and um, in the community. Um, you know, there, there was a time that, uh, you know, they were called mouthpieces and other things like that. And I think we've gone way beyond that. Um, and, and with the public defender system and all the good lawyers that are coming out of the law school who do criminal defense work, I think it's improved the profession. I really do. Uh, you know, we have some great young lawyers in my firm uh, who I practice with on a daily basis. They're great writers. They're uh, very articulate when it comes to defending uh, what I call the misunderstood. Uh, and so um, I, I think it's much better today than it maybe have been 50 years ago. This was one of the things that influences is, is as someone who um, I used to be for the death penalty, now I'm against the death penalty because you see, especially with the advent of DNA and that sort of thing, these folks being exonerated, sometimes dozens or more years later. And it's just, it's, it's offensive and it's sad. And you think, well, you know, if that guy had been put to death, then all of the exoneration would have been moot, at least for his living years. But when you see the defense attorneys defending like the mafiosos and the and the people, the Ted Bundys of the world, I read an article with you and, and you had a really good quote about it. When people say, how can you possibly defend these guys? You're not you personally, but these guys, how defense attorneys do it. You had a really terrific answer. And I want you to give it now about what your role is. I don't remember my answer. <laughs> uh well, it's, it, it, there's an interesting book out uh, by one of my colleagues called How Do You Fend to Defend These People? Um, and it's full of uh, antidotes about cases, uh, very desperate, despicable human beings that were entitled to a defense and the best defense that they could get. And, and so um, my analysis is generally... Uh, kind of akin to what happened in Dallas, Texas, when President Kennedy was assassinated. Um, The doctors in that had to deal with the president. And subsequently, shortly thereafter, 
they bring in a guy named Lee Harvey Oswald, who was allegedly the person who had shot the president. And so you think, gee, uh, here's a guy that may have shot my president. I don't have any interest in taking care of him. But the doctors take the Hippocratic Oath. We take our own oath uh, as lawyers. And they immediately jumped in to try to save his life. Uh, no matter what he did or who he was, that was their responsibility. That was their job. And my role in society is the same. I take an oath and my job is to do the best possible job I can uh, in defending uh, someone. And if the state can prove their guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, that's fine. But my job is to make sure that the state does what it's supposed to do and put it to its burden. So. That was exactly your answer, by the way. <laughs> the one that I, you just articulated is the one I read. <laughs> uh, well, I, I've, I've kind of used that more than once. Well, and I, you know, when you do it in public relations, right, when you have to stand, when I've had to do TV interviews, and sometimes you have to do TV interviews defending something that you personally are just not uh, in favor of, but you do it because you owe your client, and the relationship isn't exactly the same, but you owe your client the best possible uh, promotion and defense of, of their policies in person, and it's not easy. And I've had people go, how can you possibly have defended X or Y? And I go, What's it, what they pay me to do? And if I didn't think that I could, then I tell them I can't. And I've had to tell clients like, I don't hire me because you're not going to, I can't possibly go on and, and make your case for you. And here's someone else who you can talk to. Well, one of the historical perspectives on that, it was John Adams defense of the uh, That's right. soldiers in the revolutionary war when they had killed a number of the colonists Uh and uh, he accepted the responsibility of defending the soldier, the British soldiers. So uh, th they were not very well respected at that point. And so Adams stood up and did what he was supposed to do. And most people don't realize that John Adams defended the British soldiers who fired on the colonists in what was known as the Boston Massacre. Correct. And he won. Yes, he did. They were acquitted. How long do courtroom losses stay with you and are you are you like you read articles with sports figures and coaches right and they'll tell you when I'm in the elevator by myself or I'm driving I don't think about the shots I made I think about the shot I missed or the game that I lost how do these losses how do you get over them given the the incredibly high stakes with which you're engaged well, I tell you, my partner, Denny Zahn, a long, long time ago had a great quote about that, that we try not to get too high on our wins or too low on our losses, uh, to try to absolutely kind of uh, get in the middle. Uh, have I thought about cases that have, I've been lost in somewhere in my life? Of course. Uh But I try not to dwell on them uh, because I've got something coming up, and if I get too burdened with thinking about the past, I don't move very forward in the future. And that's what I'm required to do. But what do you go, you know, I should have, I should have raised this objection or I should have been harsher on the witness or I should have researched, you know, not you personally, but you and others, I should have researched more. And why didn't I think of that? Or have you ever walked out or the next day going, Oh shoot. If I'd asked that question, because what we see on TV and the movies, right? Everything's scripted. So it's, it ends exactly the way the writers want it to end, but the heat of trial, the heat of battle, there has to be things where you're like, 
I can't believe it. I can't believe I didn't think of that. Well, of course, we all do that. Uh, it's human nature uh, to second guess yourself, uh, anticipate if I'd have done this, things that have gone differently. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I do it all the time. Everybody does. Uh, but I try not to get uh, to the point that those are going to disrupt my thought process so I can't move forward uh, for the next case and the next responsibility I have. And is it something that perhaps you remember the next time that you're in court? You're like, you know, last time I forgot this, but this time I'm not going to forget this. Well, you know, every case is different, but uh, in certain procedural matters, uh, of course, I want to make sure that I don't make uh, the same mistake that I may have made in my own mind uh, the first time around. So, uh, yeah, I think we're all thinking about that uh, when we're trying cases. Now that you've been doing this for a few years, do you think back to the late 60s, early 70s, Jim Voiles, and go, man, if only I knew then what I know now? Well, I think about that when I used to line up on the the right tackle at the Springfield High School. I wish I was playing that pace today, not only knowing what I do. (laughs) I'm sorry, I I can't even get down, probably, into my three-point stance. If you had to hire a an attorney here in Indianapolis or Indiana to defend you, who would you hire? Who do you, who do you admire from your field? Oh, there's a lot of great lawyers in town. Uh, my partner, Jennifer Lukemeyer, uh, my pal, Rick oh, yeah. Kamen, uh, Larry Mackey. There's a whole series of wonderful criminal trial lawyers in this community. Tom Farlow. I mean, I can, I can name them, uh, in a, you know, maybe an afternoon. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there's not just one particular person that I would pick out, but those were who I think are pretty much the top of the top uh, that I've watched and I've had relationship with. Uh, Josh Mowdy, Rick's uh, son-in-law, another young, uh, g- great criminal lawyer, James Bell. I mean, there's a whole series of them in this community. Given how busy you are, even at, even at your age, you mentioned that other folks had retired and you're still working hard at it. Are you able to pay attention to other cases? And like, I wonder, for example, and we won't get specific here, but Larry Mackey was involved in a pretty high profile case three or four years ago involving a local real estate developer and it was tried up in South Bend, but it got some Indianapolis play. And I just didn't know if that's like, you know, this is interesting enough to me that I'll pay attention to it. Oh, I, I always, uh, if friends of mine are trying cases, uh, I'm always, I don't have time to spend uh, analyzing everything about it, but I'm always interested in the results. Uh, very often, some of our cases are connected because I might have a witness that would be a witness in uh, Larry's case or others' cases, and we have conversations about that. So, oh, of course, I always pay attention to what, is happening in my field. What difference does an expert attorney, and I'm going to say a Jim Voiles level attorney, and please don't dispute that, but that level of excellence and performance, what difference does that make as opposed to just a very good attorney or competent attorney? No, I, I, you know, I think you give me way, way, way too much credit because uh, I'm no different. Uh, You know, I, kiddingly tell I'm just a simple country lawyer. 
uh, I'd spent four months in a murder trial in New Jersey, uh, and that was kind of the way I played it, and we were successful. But they, uh, it's just hard work. I mean, it doesn't, it, it doesn't make me any better than anybody else. Uh, I've had a lot of practice, of course, because I'm old. Uh, and I've tried a lot of stuff, but uh, it, it's just hard work. It's putting in the time, the weekends, the evenings, uh, reading uh, the background, doing the depositions. It, that's all it is. It makes me no different than anybody else. And all you have to do is just put in the effort. Uh, but there is and, a there is a term that someone's a natural athlete or someone's a natural politician. Is it is it possible to just be? a natural attorney, like this is my calling. And for some reason, I just have the tools to be really good at it. Well, I don't know about that. But what I think is to do what we do, I think you have to like people. You have to be able to, uh, when you're in the courtroom, be be able to ascertain uh, other human characteristics from jurors or what kind of vibes you're getting from those people. You have to be able to pay attention. that, those are the things that I think are just normal attributes of a good trial lawyer. Uh, be, being able to ascertain uh, your strengths and your weaknesses, what you do best or what your uh, your client's strengths and weaknesses are. That's all. Just I think uh, every lawyer has the ability to, you know, pay attention to what they're doing and work hard. And, you know, doesn't make me any better than anybody else. Have there been any prosecutors about whom you thought, all right, I really need to have my act together. Like he or she is really good. And so, I mean, not that you take any case lightly, of course, but I mean, do one or two people stand out where you're like this, this gal, this guy, whomever is sharp. And if we're not on our, at our best, they will be. You know, I, I think that about every prosecutor, uh, when I have a case, um, on a new prosecutor or an old person that I've defended uh, a number of cases in front of, I always think that they're well-prepared, hardworking, capable, because uh, I don't think it helps to think I can take this person lightly for any other reason at all, that I think I have to think that they are better than I am, smarter than I am, because otherwise I'm going into a a, a trial that I'm not working as hard as I should be. I'm thinking as I asked that question of my, uh, one of my best friends growing up, we went to grade school and high school together was an act guy fellow and we, and his brothers, a fellow named Chris Johnson. And his mother was Carol Johnson who worked in the prosecutor's office for a long time. And she was very, very sweet to me. So asking the question about prosecutors makes me think of her. She was, she passed several years ago, cancer, I believe. And, She's a wonderful, wonderful lady. She was. I had a number of cases with Carol, uh, and I found her very capable, uh, very smart, very good in the courtroom. Uh, we had a lot of laughs outside the courtroom. Uh, we were personal friends, but she was uh, excellent in the courtroom. And smart, because her, her, she had three sons, all of whom have they have a combined IQ of about 1,200. And she was incredibly bright, and her husband, Clark Johnson, was uh, very smart as well. So, Carol Johnson, we miss you. Absolutely. Is there a person or a case in history, because I know you're a history buff, and we're going to get to racing here in a little bit, but as a history buff, you're like, you know what, I wish I could have defended this guy or this woman. Like, it would have been fun to be involved in, you know, this case. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, I haven't singled out any particular historical event that I think would be uh, wonderful. I, I've always thought I, I went uh, two years ago to Nuremberg um, mm. and I was able to go to the actual courtroom where the uh, trials took place of the uh, Nazi prisoners after the war. The courtroom hasn't changed. It's a working courtroom even today. Uh, but I thought to myself, although I haven't ever tried a military case, um, that that would have been a case that I would have liked to have been involved in. And if they said, because they uh, we're talking about the Nuremberg trials at the end of World War II took place over in Europe, um, and they these the Nazis who were tried were provided defense counsel by the Allies, could you defend, and this isn't a judgment question, but could you, if they said, this is your client, Herman Goering, or this is your client, William Keitel, uh, these infamous Nazis, and you'd be like, that's my job. Of course. Yeah. I mean, that's, you can't do what we do and being selective. Uh, you can be selective on whether you can take a case or not for another series of other reasons, but is it just because you want to turn it down because you don't like the person or what the person did or is accused of? then you shouldn't do what I do. Are you surprised at how lawyers, leaving aside Shakespeare's famous quote about killing them all, first thing we do, kill all the lawyers. I think that's Henry V. I'd have to look that up, but that's kind of a famous uh, slanderous quote about attorneys. Are you ever shocked at the the bad rap they tend to get? Oh, I'll say not shocked, but disappointed um, because the I, I was president of the Indianapolis Bar Association in 2009, which was one of the highest honors of my legal career. Um, and we have approximately 5,000 lawyers in the Indianapolis area. That's government lawyers, prosecutors, defense lawyers, civil lawyers, administrative lawyers, general counsel, a whole group of wonderful people. And uh, it was a highlight for me to be able to be their spokesperson and be the president of that association. It's got amazing executive director, Julie Armstrong, and a great staff, uh, one of the best in the country. And so uh, I, and I think they strive to make sure that the reputation of lawyers um, that is negative, that we do a lot of positive things in the community. And we do. Um, we have Ask a Lawyer programs. They have the legal aid uh, for the indigent. I mean, there's all kinds of things going on in our legal community that are positive. Uh, so I think it kind of wipes out the negativity. You've had some incredibly high profile clients. And I know that there are somewhat, there are limits on what you can say, but that list includes Jim Ursay, Larry Bird, Pat McAfee, Bill Simpson on the uh, Dale Earnhardt helmet lawsuit, if I've said that correctly. And also Bobby Knight. How is it different just in general terms, uh, representing folks who are so much in the public eye that you know uh, everything they say and do that the trial is going to be super high profile and that's an added element that just probably isn't 
uh, involved in some cases? Well, probably the the most uh, difficult thing um, is to make sure how to handle the publicity that surrounds the case. Uh, probably the the biggest case with the publicity was the Mike Tyson case uh, that uh, came in the early part of the uh, 1990s. And um, I, I think two things you have to do. You have to understand for yourself that it's not about you. Uh, it's about the client. And, you know, when I got calls from the Today Show or uh, CBS or whoever was interested in that case and other cases like that, um, they're not calling to talk to you, really. They want to know everything that you can give them about your client. So there's this kind of uh, restraint that I think is important that uh, if you're in a case of a high-profile individual, your duty lies to your client. It certainly doesn't go to answering questions to the press or anybody else about that. I'm going to do what I do in the courtroom, and if you want to see it, come over and watch. But other than that, uh, I think that's our responsibility. Um, I'm pretty firm on not talking to the press. Um uh, I'm very firm on trying to keep my clients from doing the same when I'm involved with their case uh, and making sure that we concentrate on what the issues are so that we can defend it appropriately in the courtroom. Given how much Coach Knight uh, loves the media, was it pretty easy to keep him away from the microphones? Oh, yeah. He, that wasn't hard at all. <laughs> When you're in there with with an icon like him and a Hoosier icon and Larry Bird, obviously, but is it does it change your approach at all? It's like, no, this is what I do and this is how I do it. And you guys called me for a reason. Let me do my job. Well, I, I never got pushback from any clients that you deem to be high profile. Uh, we had conversations about how the case uh, was going to go in terms of what we're doing and why we're doing it. but. Uh, I never got any pushback. Everybody was very respectful um, in my thought process. Uh, you know, the, the biggest problem we had in uh, uh, in a couple of cases was I, I didn't have. You need to have pretty much complete control, and if you don't have that, you you need to do something else uh, because there's only one captain to the ship, and you can't have three or four second mates yelling about doing this and doing that and doing this because that doesn't work very well. So you have to establish that at the beginning that here's what I think and here's why I think we want to do it and uh, let me do what I can do best. You mentioned the Mike Tyson case uh, a few minutes ago. You could just talk about that for a couple minutes and then we'll move on to other aspects of, of your life and your interests. Uh, I should say that uh, we should acknowledge the passing of uh, a terrific member of a wonderful East side family. And that is uh, fireman John Lorenzano who passed away in the fire at the athletic club. Correct. Um, that was the night of the big fire there. Um, I was on my way home from the Hyatt hotel where we had our headquarters uh, and saw the fire and was very concerned, of course, because I knew the jurors were there. Uh, and uh, we had to deal with not only his loss of life, but another uh, right. 
person who was staying at the club uh, also perished. Um, and it was a very tough time, two or three days there as we went through that. How did your, in, how did your involvement in the Tyson uh, defense team come to pass? Well, I got a call from Vince Fuller uh, shortly after there was an announcement that they were going to have an investigation on Mike, asking me to be local counsel uh, with he and his firm. Uh, and I agreed to do that. Um, at that time, uh, I didn't exactly know what my role was going to be, um, but it turned out that uh, Vince felt very strongly that he had to control the case. Uh, he brought his team from uh, Williams and Connolly in Washington, D.C., some terrific lawyers, uh, people who are still friends of mine now, Lane Hurd, George Borden. Uh, he also had a woman with him, Kathleen Beggs, and unfortunately, most Beggs and Mr. Fuller are deceased. Um, but that's kind of the team, and uh, I was just part of the uh, team. I was one of the and to give them some idea about Indianapolis, uh, it was tried in front of Judge Gifford, uh, who I had familiarity with. And so uh, there were a lot of things about the case that uh, they they used uh, kind of my background and connections within the community to uh, give them some insight. And I would imagine local council is probably retaining local counsel for something like this happens everywhere and is pretty common, but do you have any oh, yeah. sense why they chose you? have no idea. I think uh, a good friend of mine recommended me. Uh, and that's the reason I think uh, they had reached out to somebody's in the, some people in the community and I was referred uh, to them. And so that's kind of how I ended up on the team. And correct my memory uh, if I'm wrong, but the chief prosecuting attorney was Greg Garrison. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. How, how well did you know him and how did you guys get along both during and after the trial? Uh, I knew Greg very well. He was my intern at one point. Uh, oh, I didn't know that. For a semester. Yeah. And uh, our daughters were in class together uh, in school, in high school. Um, Greg and I were friends. He had left the prosecutor's office and was brought back by Jeff Modisette to prosecute Tyson. So uh, I knew him uh, extremely well. We continued to maintain our friendship uh, till today. Uh, after this broadcast, he probably won't talk to me anymore. But uh, no, no, we're, st we're still very close friends. Uh, matter of fact, we did a program about a year ago. Uh, about the case and we were to do one for the bar association, but I was trapped and, uh, and couldn't come to the bar association event. But, uh, we discussed, uh, that case multiple times. I still think he did a very lousy job. He thinks I didn't do enough. And so there we are, <laughs> but it was difficult because we, what we would do is, as you know, that Vince really tried the case along with Miss Beggs and I didn't get to, speak in the courtroom. So every time we took a recess and went to the restroom together, he made fun of me uh, that I wasn't getting to do anything. So, And then he goes on to radio glory. Did you ever Correct. listen to Greg Garrison's radio show or call in and go, Garrison, oh, you yeah, know what the I, hell you're talking about? I, I was on it a couple of times, but you know, I, he, he only brought me on because I was the liberal and <laughs> to give the opposite point of view, whatever he was saying. 
Tyson was was convicted, and when you're going through a case, not only like that, but other cases, is there a point, or has it occurred to you at certain points of trials, like we're just not going to be able to win this one? Like either the evidence is so overwhelming, or how you read the jury, or how your own uh, client uh, performs on the stand, where you just it comes to you, it's just not going to happen this time. Well. Um... Two or three days into the case, I started getting some bad feelings um, and uh, voiced that to counsel um, that we were not connecting with the jury. Greg was. Greg Greg tried a lot of cases, and he was uh, very adept at uh, the what we call street crime cases. Uh, Vince came from a white-collar uh, trial background, which is very different. In federal court, uh, he uses a lot of, uh, you're not allowed to uh, get close to the jury. He used a podium. He had his podium brought here. There were a lot of things about his practice uh, in federal court that just didn't translate very well uh, to the state court process. And so he, uh, I I felt we had some problems uh, as the case was going along. And how was how was Mike Tyson as a client? I mean, he's he so aggressive in the ring. So you wonder, can he dial it back when it's just like, just listen to us? Yeah, he's re- he was really excellent. I never had a bit of problem. I stayed with Mike for 10 years. Uh, I did his case out in Maryland uh, when he got in trouble and he was still on probation here. Um, I did the appeal with uh, Alan Dershowitz uh, along with... Uh, other lawyers from the community here in Indianapolis. And uh, so uh, I I had a wonderful relationship. A few years back, Mike came to town when he had his one man show. He called me up and said, I'd like to go to dinner with you. And he and I went by ourselves. His wife was with him. We went to St. Elmo's. And when I walked in, he handed me a drawing from the trial that he had autographed to me and thanked me for everything that I had done. Because we we really did have a personal relationship. After the conviction, I rode with him in the sheriff's car out to the uh, uh, Department of Corrections. And he, he said to me, he said, okay, farm boy, here we go. And, I mean, that's just kind of how our relationship was. It was very warm and uh, straightforward. And when you see him on TV today or on social media or whatever, do you – do you smile or do you go, look, this, this guy got convicted, so we can't ever get past that? No, no, I do smile. Uh, he had a lot and does have a lot of warm, wonderful qualities that uh, I, I enjoyed with our relationship. And uh, if I would see him and I'm wishing well, I know he's going to have another fight this year um, that that's being scheduled or talked about. So, no, 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 I, uh, I had a wonderful, warm relationship with him that, was, that he does make me smile. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. We were also now a part of Wish TV's All Indiana Podcast Network. You can find our podcast at 
allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Our guest today is Jim Voiles, who has defended many high-profile clients and mentored many, many young lawyers. He has a terrific personal history, and we're thrilled that he's decided to come on the podcast, talk about it a little bit. A question I want to ask you very quickly before we talk about your love of racing and cars. Is there a Hoosier leader or legend you particularly admire? Oh, gosh. Uh, let me think that. That's kind of a tough question. There's been so many uh, Hoosier leaders that I admire. Um, James Whitcomb Riley comes to mind. I've always been fascinated by his poetry and his uh, a, a woman who was just a student at Purdue, Amelia Earhart. So just a few of those people come to my mind that uh, were unique uh, quality individuals who I do admire. It's funny, I'm recording this podcast with Mr. Voiles today. And then we, we we try not to make a calendar connection, but this won't really uh, matter. But tomorrow I'm having lunch with Judge Sarah Evans Barker, <laughs> who came on the podcast before. I'm I'm actually a little bit nervous uh, as we as I say this. And then in about another week, I'm having lunch with two guys I know you know, and one of them is named David Frick, and the other one is named Ted Bohm. Excellent, excellent then, people. The reason I mentioned these names, and we've had other attorneys on the show, obviously, is the importance of a thriving legal community within an urban core, within a city, and what it means for philanthropy, nonprofits, and all the sorts of grassroots charitable giving and activity that happens in a city and a state. Am I overstating the importance of the legal community and individual lawyers and law firms and creating that atmosphere of giving and serving? No. And I think that speaks two reasons. It speaks highly of what you're saying. One, the Indianapolis Bar Association uh, and Julie Armstrong uh, support that completely, as well as the fact we're in the Midwest. There's a huge difference in the way that we look at life and that we deal with things, I think, than uh, other parts of the country. And so uh, I've always considered it a real privilege to have grown up here. You fell in love with racing and with cars at a young age. You've attended how many Indianapolis 500s? We can't count this one, but uh, 66. You've attended 66. On the phone call we had uh, before we scheduled this podcast recording, I had mentioned to him that um, I guess we're going to have the leaders on the Leaders and Legends podcast is three-time Indianapolis 500 champion Johnny Rutherford. Jim Voiles was at the 64 race where Dave McDonald and Eddie Sachs were killed and Johnny Rutherford and Bobby Unzer were almost killed. Starting with that race, because I know you were the accident happened right in front of you. Can you talk about two or three or four races or race drivers that stick out in your memory? Well, uh, probably my 
one of my favorites is, well, I've got a few, but uh, Foyt's a, AJ Foyt is a, not only a personal friend of mine and my wife's, uh, my fact, fact, my wife has known him longer. My wife was married uh, um, before I and she got together. We both were, but she grew up, uh, her maiden name was Parsons and her father had won the Indianapolis 500 in 1950. Uh, and so she grew up with those uh, race drivers as a young person. And when she was a senior at Cecina High School, she got Foyt, who had just won the Indianapolis 500, to be their grand marshal for their homecoming. So uh, <laughs> I, I have uh, always had a great love of him. I thought he was the finest until Tony Stewart came around, uh, uh, the all-around a driver who could drive anything, anywhere, anytime, any place, and we've talked about it many times. Uh, Stuart, I know very well too, because I defended Tony in his case out in New York. Um, and so, um, one what of my he, what was he accused of? I forget. Uh, it's when they said that he had run over the young boy who ran out on the track. Oh, that's right. Uh, in uh, in New York, but. Uh, the uh, one of my heroes, too, was a guy named Jimmy Clark uh, and Dario Franchitti, who's a close friend of mine. Uh, Dario and I are both Clark aficionados. And uh, one of my trips to Europe, I went to his gravesite in uh, in Scotland. A very moving experience. It's got the laurel wreath from the speedway on the gravestone. And there's a mm. museum there that Dario is a big contributor to. Uh, with a lot of Indianapolis memorabilia in that museum. And, and so, um, you know, it's just a, 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 I got started as a young guy watching the race. My first race was 1949 when I watched it on television. Uh, Channel 6, WFBM, televised that race. Uh, and not very many people know that, but I watched that. And then my first race that I actually saw as a spectator was 1953. So. I've seen a number of races. Well, my uncle, Bob Dorn, was a pit crewman for A.J. Foyt when he won in 61, the first of his four victories. So we grew up huge A.J. Foyt fan. And, you know, if he can go to Cecina's uh, parade, he can certainly – I went to Howe, which is just down the street. So, you know, he can come on the <laughs> Leaders and Legends podcast anytime, uh, Super Tex. The 64 race stands out because of the accident and then Foyt winning his second. The accident happened right in front of you. Correct. How difficult was it to be there for that? And did any of these accidents, we often think of the 73 race because of the numerous accidents and deaths of that race in the month. Did any of that put you off? Like, I just can't watch this. It's too dangerous. No, no. You have, it's not bowling. Uh, you know, it's, it's a serious sport. You know, as Hemingway said, the only two sports uh, are bullfighting and race driving, race car driving, um, because they're they're very risky uh, sports. But uh, no, I probably the worst uh, event that happened to me was in 1971 when uh, my partner and I and a friend of mine, Dave Wilhoyt, uh, walked into the track with James Malloy, who was our friend. Uh, and Jim died that afternoon in a terrific crash in turn three and had been the fastest driver that month in Dan Gurney's Eagle. Uh, and so that 
I mean, it, it, it is what it is in terms of that happening. Uh, I've witnessed a lot of very bad and a lot of fatalities in my uh, years of watching automobile racing, but it, it didn't deter me. I've always been interested in the mechanics and the responsibility that the driver has to be safe. And um, so I, I keep going back to, uh, to, to watch uh, the competition. Uh, this, this is part of, it's part of me. When you bring, I'm assuming you have, so correct me if my premise is wrong. I guess you're not supposed to ask a question. I don't know the answer to, so I'm a poor lawyer. Have you brought friends in from out of town who've never been to the 500, taken them to the race and what was their reaction? Oh yeah. I, when I was in high school, uh, we have a group of guys that we grew, I grew up with. There's 14 of us and we're still together. We just did a zoom call the other uh, Monday night together, all of us. And one was the former CEO of Cargill, the world's largest privately held company, a doctor, a lawyer. Uh, I mean, we're all very, very close and I would bring them. We'd stayed at my grandparents' house who lived here because we were living in Springfield and we came every year, uh, and still do. Um, a couple of years ago, we have reunions every two years, uh, that we all get together. And I brought them all to the track. Uh, it was my year to, to host the reunion. And I, I we did it at our house and, uh, rented a suite at the track and brought them all here for that. So, yeah, uh, they had, I grew up in the car era, you know, in the fifties and sixties, that's what we did. We worked on cars. We chased girls. Uh, we didn't study much. That was it. <laughs> I remember working at the uh, Holiday Inn at the airport owned by uh, Jim Dora Sr., a man I'm guessing you probably knew. Uh, and people would come in and spend the weekend at the hotel, race weekend. And it was always fun to talk to the guests who had never seen the 500. And this is early 90s. And for me to just say, let me know what you think about it when I see you Sunday night after you get back. And universally, I can't remember a single person, and I'm talking dozens and dozens of people over the three or four years I worked there, that just weren't in awe of what they saw, that they had been to sporting events, basketball games, football games, whatever. But just the pageantry and the people and the race itself are all those the things that you think makes the Indianapolis 500 just different? Oh yeah, for sure. And I, I I've been to Le Mans twice. I've been to Monaco. Uh, I've been to a lot of great race courses, but I've been to the Daytona 500 multiple times. But um, it it can't compete at all. And and I have I share Roger Penske's passion that it's going to be difficult without fans. Uh, we certainly understand why that occurred, but uh, it'll be different uh, because uh, it, that's all part of the pageantry. It's all part of the event. It's all part of what we as Hoosiers uh, expect every May. And so it's a kind of a large disappointment for all of us. And particularly Roger, uh, who is a personal friend of mine, uh, that to have to deal with this uh, without having all the strength and support that you get when you look up and see the grandstands full of great people. We've had uh, Mark Miles on the podcast and Allison Melangdon at on the podcast, both who work at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. 
how would you rate the job and Doug Bowles, the job they've done with the 500 in the last half dozen or so years? Um, it's oh, amazing I- how wonderful the races have been. The races itself themselves have come down almost to the last three or four laps several years in a row. So that helps, but just their performance and, and remaking and re-promoting and reinvigorating the Indianapolis 500. Well, you have two things when you look at racing for the Indy Racing League and uh, IndyCar. Um, Mark, on the other hand, and Allison's job is to promote the event and to make it uh, well-known, well-respected and exciting and interesting. Um, Jay Fry, who's the president of the IndyCar, has a different role. His role is to integrate within the community good engines, good, safe chassis, all the kind of improvements we had that brought that competition to the head that you see the last three or four years. Uh, And so they work together uh, to put this uh, kind of presentation that we have every May out there. So you have not only a great venue, a lot of wonderful things to do here in the community, as well as great competition. So it kind of works uh, all together. And I think Allison, who's a Another personal friend of mine, as well as Mark, uh, have done a magnificent job in recreating. And and Doug, I've known Doug a a long time, and Doug's the perfect spokesman. Uh, He has the passion. His father was the judge in Hendricks County and still works at the Speedway as in the safety uh, area. So um, he grew up with a passion, uh, much like I did. Uh, And I think that's what sells uh, the work that they do out there. You mentioned several names, and one of the themes of the Leaders and Legends podcast is not only the folks like P.E. McAllister and Bert Servas and Mayor Hudnut and Tom Benford, Jim Morris, David Frick, the list goes on and on, right, Ted Bohm, who were leaders who catapulted Indianapolis from what was termed an oval in a cornfield into what was clearly an international Super Bowl hosting city. But you've also mentioned several names of folks from a different generation. And then there's people who are closer to my generation. I'm 52 and I'm thinking of Maggie Lewis and Ryan Vaughn and, and folks like that. Talk just for a second about the quality of leadership you've seen in the city of Indianapolis as you've watched it grow for the past 50 years? Oh, it's extraordinary. Um, You know, I go back to the time when uh, Dick Luger was mayor uh, and that and John Barton before him uh, was finishing his mayoral run. And so it started there and it's just been accelerating ever since with each continuing uh, generation of mayoral candidates and the con- combination with the industry uh, and the foresight that people like Ted Bohm uh, and Dave Frick had in putting that all together and making Indianapolis a showcase. There's no question about it. If I had told you in 1981, bought you lunch there at the at um, the Ayers Tea Room, it's 1981, of course, I would have only been 13, but still, and I said, you know, Jim, in 30 years, not only will Indianapolis host a Super Bowl, it will redefine what it means to host a Super Bowl in the biggest, best 
party, the city's throne ever that didn't happen in Speedway. You would have said. Not possible. <laughs> no, I, you know, we That's, all had hope. We all had hope for that because when, you know, before Simon got downtown and built the mall, uh, it was a big hole in the ground down there. Uh, you should know this, but at, when I was in law school, the Canterbury hosted lunch, a go-go had a go-go bar in it. And so that whole <laughs> section of town is a little different now. Uh, and it's really been a phenomenal success. As we wrap up, before we ask the final five questions that we ask of all our guests, I want to mention one other uh, defining event in your life, which actually is the impetus for you coming on the podcast. And that is, I was having lunch with the unofficial Leaders and Legends podcast guru, Mr. Ed Tracy. He mentioned you were at the 1968 convention, the Democratic convention in Chicago, because I know Ed was there because uh Jim Riggs, who's the father of uh, my dear friend, uh, Dina Riggs, Jim Riggs was there as well. I'm a huge fan of the year 1968. I've read several books on it. Um, and he mentioned that you were there. Jerry Zori was there, who you uh, named, we talked about a few minutes ago. The 1968 Democratic Convention, National Convention in Chicago is either famous or infamous, depending on your point of view. Uh, with tear gas and rioting and, and the police uh, uh, waving, swinging their batons with... Uh, Sounds familiar like today, doesn't it? <laughs> with vigor. Um, yeah, Chicago. It's, it's, a, it's a whole other podcast. But what are your memories of that convention? How did you get involved in kind of Democrat politics and grow up a Democrat? Uh, and how has your political worldview kind of shaped your life? Oh, I got involved in... Uh being a Democrat, very easy. My dad was a Democrat. There wasn't anybody else to be but a Democrat. And <laughs> uh, uh, my uncle was a Democrat. My grandparents were Democrats. And so that's what happened. But um, when I came out of law school, I worked as a precinct committeeman out on the east side. Uh, and that's kind of uh, through my uncle. That was an idea that uh, I think that he may have fostered in me. And so I got involved there, and that's how I met all those guys. Uh, in 1968, my dad had a friend that had an apartment at the Marina Towers, which is still there in downtown Chicago. It's a circular yeah. tower. And he said that I've got an apartment, and Jerry worked for Jim Nichols, who was the uh, had head of credentials for the Democratic – he was with the – the uh, Trade Commission in Washington, D.C., and Jerry said, we're going to get credentials. And so my father – and he brought his friend, Tom Lemon, who is the former mayor of Bloomington, or Lake Lemon, and uh, Jerry Zori and Ed Tracy and I, we all stayed in the Marina Towers and attended the convention. And Jim got us the credentials to put us on the floor in that convention. We had no idea. We'd all just taken uh, the bar exam uh, and were waiting for the results. We had no idea what the heck we were getting into. Well, Ed says that uh, in in both the pod in my lunches with him, and in the podcast we did with him and Jim Kittle, sitting together, that he came downstairs and maybe you were with him. I'd have to remember asking, but I'm going to ask you first. He came down the elevator, started to walk towards Grant Park or wherever, and saw the tear gas and turned right around. Is my memory failing me? But 
he started to head to where the action was and realized he didn't want any part of that action. Yeah, we, we saw all that and we didn't participate in any of that, but uh, I was on the floor of the convention standing next to Shirley McLean. Uh, we saw uh, Mayor Daly uh, give the finger uh Abe Ribikoff uh, to Abe Ribikoff. I mean, we, we got to, we got to see everything, you know, cause we're locked into the convention. We didn't want to get out into the fights in the street. And so we saw a lot of stuff, but it was a, I still have um, a credential from that convention. And so it, it was an amazing event. Uh, and then we all learned that we had, uh, we had taken the July bar. And so we were waiting for the results and finally got admitted in September of 68. One of the things we try to do on the podcast is to have R's and D's sit down together and talk about their lives and politics and maybe the kind of, as I call them, uh, Sam and George fights that you can have in politics. And that's an obvious reference to the Warner Brothers cartoon of the coyote and the sheepdog who are very pleasant to each other, clock in, beat the hell out of each other, then clock out and they're pleasant again. How important is it for you to have that sort of it's not personal relationship, not only with opposing attorneys, but maybe with folks who in the legal community who you know are uh, strong Republican supporters? And to name a few names, that would be Bob Grand or Toby McClamrock or my former boss, Murray Clark or John Hammond, Tom John. There's plenty of them who've uh, done terrific work for their party, and you're a proud Democrat. and how tough is it to separate it or is it just a different generation's way of looking at things? No, I don't think it, I mean, it's very easy for me. All those people you mentioned are friends of mine. Um, I've never fought them politically cause I'm not in the political arena, but do I know they do great work for their party? And yeah, absolutely. Uh, are they bright people? Absolutely. Are they affable people? Absolutely. And so it's really, uh, difficult for me to understand what goes on in Washington where people are name calling and doing things to each other that uh, don't facilitate uh, moving uh, legislation forward. Um, uh, and so I, I've always thought that being here in the Midwest, the way we grew up, the way we treat each other uh, and uh, handle our neighbors and our relationships with each other uh, goes a long way of success in promoting whatever you're involved in, whether it's legislation, uh, that you're wanting to pass or whether it's uh, dealing with somebody in the courtroom uh, that you are having uh, a battle with. Uh, very often, sometimes police officers, I'm, you know, pretty tough on them when they're sitting on the stand uh, subject to my cross-examination. But certainly after that's over, there's no longer any animosity on my part and there's none in the courtroom. It's just I'm trying to do my job and uh, I've been during my career, ended up representing a number of police officers who've been on the other side of me. You ever been pulled over by someone who had just lit up on the witness stand and they were like, you know, it's a year ago, you made me look like a fool. So here's your ticket for speeding. No, no, no. I, I've been pulled over a number of times because I have this very bad reputation of driving fast, but uh, they've always been very kind to me. And if I would deserve a ticket, they gave it to me. But most of the time, They've forgiven my uh, attitude about speed. I want to ask you one question about your love of cars. Uh, I am I am not necessarily a car aficionado because it's just a pretty damn expensive hobby. Uh, books are expensive enough. Uh, I couldn't imagine collecting cars, but 
talk a little bit about your, I read some about it, your car collection. Do you have a favorite car or type of car or do you have a favorite movie car? Like if you could choose any car from any movie, which, which car would you choose? Well, I've, I got a number of wonderful cars. It started as kind of, I grew up with cars and so I had an affection. I've worked with cars my whole life. Um, and so it was easy for me. And I, I was able to acquire my cars in a pretty normal way and not as expensive as you would think. Uh, but I tell people the my favorite car is the car I'm driving at the time. <laughs> And, and I've and I've got a number of choices to make. Uh, we have a few at our house that I have, and I've always kind of been attracted to uh, European sports cars. Um, and they're they're just I mean, they're kind of movable art to me. I work on them, I polish them myself, I wash them myself, I take care of them. I mean, I treat them uh, like you know, fine items of mechanical art that they are. What was it like when your one of your kids say, Hey dad, can I have the key to a certain car? And you're like, no, 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 no. That's Here's easy. The- I'd said, no, I had six kids growing up. And so I, I, I had a lot of no's, but you know, recently one of my sons stopped by and uh, I just got a Cobra, uh, a replica Cobra. And uh, he drove it to get some gas and, one of my sons drove my uh, replica of Steve McQueen's Mustang from the movie Bullet. And so I, I'm, I must be weakening in my old age. <laughs> I was going to ask you, is that your favorite car chase scene, the movie Bullet? The best. Absolutely the best. Absolutely. French Connection's pretty good too, but Bullet's tough to beat. Yeah, Bullet is very tough to beat. And uh, I've, I always enjoyed him. And I sure enjoyed when he movie, made Le Mans, the movie. and. Uh, and did you ever get a chance to meet Steve McQueen? You, most I people don't know he was born at St. Francis Hospital in Beach right. Grove. Right, he lived Indiana. in Beach Grove. No, I did not. I met his. Uh, I met his last wife. Uh, we were at Pebble Beach for the Concourse d'Elegance in August, which is held every year except this year because uh, it's canceled because of COVID nineteen. And uh, she was there uh, selling a book uh, about his last movie, and I got a chance to meet her. Um, and uh, I always admired him as an actor. He was made some great movies. Papa Thornton, the uh, the hunter, wasn't that his Correct. last one? Yeah. We've reached the five questions portion of the Leaders and Legends podcast. We ask the same five questions of all our guests. And if Mr. Jim Voiles is ready, we're ready. I'm ready. What was your first job? My first job... Uh, I, I was a paper boy for the Michigan city news dispatch. What was your first concert? Jeez. Uh, the fun, one I remember was Stan gets, uh, who Stan gets. He's a saxophone player, G E T Z one of the world <laughs> famous and did the bossa Nova. It was in uh, Jacksonville, Illinois. If you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? I'm just starting one called uh, Leonardo da Vinci, which is an excellent book. Uh, I would recommend that or the book that uh, I'm, I've just finished uh, about Ulysses S. Grant. The Chernow book, Ron Chernow? Yes, yes. Number four, if you could witness any event in history, 
be there in person as it happens, which event would you choose? Lincoln's first inaugural. First inaugural address? Yeah. Isn't that the better angels of our nature address? Yep. I think it is. Yeah. Actually, I should say this uh, in a few weeks, or maybe it, uh, let me say it differently. We are going to record a Leaders and Legends podcast with Edward Larson, who's a famous historian who, uh, one of his areas of expertise, he won the Pulitzer Prize, is on the Scopes Monkey Trial. Hmm. That's great. Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours off the record, just to chat, whom would you choose? Winston Churchill. Living today. Oh, living today. Oh, I th- okay. Uh, President Obama. I think he, I'd have to have Spangle, but I think he's number one. I think he's been chosen by more people. Uh, and for good reason. He seems like he'd be a hell of a dinner guest, actually. Right. You can talk sports. You can talk politics. Yeah. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall, and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group. Some terrific lawyers there, that's for sure. The McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Our guest has been Jim Voiles, longtime Hoosier, super lawyer, a man who's given so much of himself, race car and racing enthusiast, and history buff, all terrific qualities. Thank you, Jim, very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for asking me. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Mm-hmm.